I'm back with another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. This is episode 548. We're about to hit the 550 episode mark. As you know, this show is about building ambitious startups, bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped, but without sacrificing our freedom, our purpose, and our relationships to do so. I have a great conversation today with co-founder of Aurelius, Zach Naylor. Aurelius is a SaaS app for UX researchers, and it's for them to organize and tag and search all of their of their research notes, both audio that gets transcribed as well as text that you enter in. As you know, you can imagine doing jobs to be done interviews or doing any type of of UX research and interaction research, and then needing to you know filter that and and search through it later. And the two of them are working on it full time. They're what I'd consider a mostly bootstrap company, having bootstrapped it for the last five years and through many versions. And you'll actually hear us tell the, the harrowing tale of, of reversioning and having to replatform it. And then, you know, just it's a hard story in the sense that they were getting some traction, but not enough, not enough to quit their day jobs. And so they realized there was one section of the app that, that people really loved. And so they just had to rebuild it with a new technology and really focus on this one piece of it. It's a fascinating story and I hope you enjoy it. Before we dive into that, if you haven't downloaded our two exclusive episodes along with the PDF guides, you should head to startuptotherestofus.com and enter your email address. The first guide is eight things you must know when launching your SaaS. And the second is 10 things you should know as you scale your SaaS. And these are essentially solo podcast episodes where I dug into eight things and 10 things respectively that I feel like everyone should keep in mind as they're doing this. These are takeaways from you know 20 years of, of entrepreneurship and, and 16 years of, of thinking about and, and talking to and advising entrepreneurs. So start up to the rest of us.com, sign up for the email list to get those. And with that, let's dive into our conversation. Zach Naylor, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Definitely. Uh, really honored to be on. Actually, pretty humbled that you asked, so I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on, man. I mean, we've known each other for a few years. You live here in Minneapolis, where I do, and you and I have uh, had some bourbons now and again, you might say. It's been a while, though, due to COVID. Yeah, unfortunately. You might say, and I will say. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I'm fascinated to have you on today to talk about a few elements uh, of your journey with Aurelius. And for those who are trying to figure out how to spell that, it's A U R E L. I-U-S. Your H1 is your research is solid, but it only matters if you can get from data to insights to influence faster. Prove what you know with the more powerful research repository and insights platform. And it's aimed at UX researchers. Is that is that right? Am I summarizing that? Is it UX designers, UX researchers? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's really anybody who's doing regular research with their customers. That tends to be for us primarily UX research teams. It also then means general UX teams. So that could be designers, right? If you're in a company doing UX, but you don't have a dedicated research team yet, maybe because you're not big enough or they haven't recognized the need, whatever, you're still doing that. Maybe you're in product management, you're doing customer research all the time, either with UX or not. And so those are the folks who tend to find the most value out of Aurelius. Got it. And and to give people an idea, because you know, UX research is like a it's a fairly new thing, at least in my experience. And when you first told me about Aurelius, I mean, I don't know, was it three years ago, maybe three, four years ago when we met? 
you were explaining it to me and I was like, I'm not sure I really understand what it is, you know, or what it does. But these days you have enough traction that you and your co-founder Joseph are full-time on the product. Um, you've been accepted into Tiny Seed Batch 3, congratulations. You know, you you have traction here. And to give folks an idea of, of what the product does, because again, I almost come at it. I mean, of course, have I done jobs to be done interviews? Yes. Have I done light UX research myself? Of course, as a founder, I had to do all this stuff, right? But I never, I'm not a professional at it, right? I'm, I'm definitely, um, you know, an amateur who's trying to do it. So to get my head around it, I'm looking at down through what, what the product does from a nuts and bolts level, not the benefits, but the, the literal features. And it looks like you can take all of your research notes, whether you're doing a job to be done or whether you're doing just a, a conversation, you're taking a bunch of notes, or you can, if you have interviews that are audio, you can upload them and you'll transcribe them. So the idea is to get all this stuff into text and then you tag things. So you can like highlight this sentence and do hashtag feature request, hashtag error. And then later on, you can filter and you can search by those hashtags, right? So it's it's taking this volumes of notes and other textual data and being able to apply a taxonomy to it that's later searchable and filterable. Am I explaining that relatively well? Yeah, yeah, you are. I mean, I, I obviously think about this a lot. And so I would just add to that or maybe even try to distill it further and say the biggest question you get is, what do we know about our customers who need X, Y, and Z? And so when you think about that, how do you get that today? It's everywhere. It's emails, spreadsheets, post-it notes, like everywhere. Aurelius is a place that is a, what people refer to, central repository, where you can search, share, and reuse that stuff all in one spot. And so, absolutely, you're talking about jobs to be done interviews. You take all those notes. Now, you're actually a perfect example. You said you're not a UX researcher, but you play one on TV kind of thing, right? And you do all these interviews and you go, well, how do I make sense of all that? Well, there's a lot of stuff in Aurelius that helps you do that. We actually do like automatic keyword analysis to help you find patterns and themes, frequency to help you analyze and make sense of this. And then when you say, well, what did you learn from all the interviews? That's where you capture these key insights. You can filter and sort off those themes, tags, and say, these are the things we learned. But then that becomes one central bank of knowledge where you can get a lot more mileage out of that, where next time when you got to figure out what you learn from research, you don't have to do new research and waste time and resources, which nobody likes. And, you know, you can actually get a lot more mileage out of the research you did. Right. Because that's that's the thing. I think when you first, again, we go back three or four years, you told me about this idea. I remember thinking, isn't this solved with Google Docs or with Evernote? Or, you know, there's all these tools to do note taking, and I'm sure there's ways to taxonomize or to, you know, hashtag and organize it. But it sounds like there isn't a tool like this aimed at UX folks. Is that right? Or I guess researchers in general. I mean, that's the thing you were mentioning offline that <laughs> there were some like, what are you saying, like marketing re- market researchers or something and, and that they were using some crappy tool or Evernote and, and that they saw what you had and were like, wow, this is, we could use this in our field. Yeah, that's a really good observation. And so I think because we are in such a nascent area of the industry, the solutions are Google Docs, Confluence, spreadsheets and stuff like that, because those are just the tools that were given to us, right? And so we think that those are free. And that's a whole nother conversation, right? Oh, these tools are free. Well, it's not you're always paying for them in some way. But right, they're not actually built for the purpose. And so the things that you want to do with these notes, with being able to capture these insights, with being able to share it with people, actually requires stitching together multiple tools. So to have it in one place, not only a huge efficiency boost, but also a lot of other features that don't exist in something like Evernote, right? 
Right. And I mean, you know, the old adage, I love to say this, uh, anytime someone is using a spreadsheet, that's a SaaS company, right? In the, in the making. I mean, eventually it can and or will be replaced by that. I think Anar may have said that. I don't know. I've, I've heard a few people say it, but I, I think it's just a great, it's a great takeaway. Okay. So I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on the, on the product itself, but I really wanted folks to understand what it is because it essentially is like a vertical, you know, it's a verticalized tool. It's for researchers. And if you don't do a bunch of research, you know, again, as myself coming to it, I was, I was kind of like, well, so why would I need this, right? Or why does this solve a problem that, that people be willing to pay for? With that in mind, so you started the company six years ago, 2015 with your co-founder. In 2016, you launched an alpha and you started testing, testing it with folks. And the product was very different from what it is today. And in fact, you were telling me on the side, including that alpha version, you've literally had four versions of this product. And I mean, that's just painful. It's painful to hear because I know that, that each of those times you had to make a decision to kind of scrap the version and, and start a new one, that, that could not have been easy. And it probably was a pretty big blow to your whatever. It's a blow to your ego, but also just a blow to your motivation of like, oh, shit. Do we really have to do this again? So can you talk us through maybe the first one or two of those? Like, did you scrap the code and you started over? Was it just UX? And what got you? There has to be people listening to this podcast right now who, who are in that space of like, we built something, but people don't want it or they don't want all of it. Or they don't, like, what, what was that process for you as a, you know, I would say a, like a professional, <laughs> professional UX, you know, researcher and product person. Like, how did you go about going down this path in the early days? Whew. Okay, so where we want to start here. Yeah, 2015, we like officially formed the company, right? And sometime in 2016, I want to say it was March-ish, but don't hold me to that. We launched the Alpha. So that wasn't even, you weren't paying for it yet. This was purely sign up on our website. Let's collect emails. Let's get you in a sort of an alpha or beta program. In fact, I was even doing this manually, like personal connections because I worked in the industry. I would like you to come in and check this out. You'll use it for free, yada, yada, yada. Now that version was actually a product strategy platform. So it was a classic startup mistake. We built too much too soon, right? Like we were way too broad. And uh, as I was talking with you a little bit about this, what happened during that point in time was, you know, out of 100 people that came to us, 10 were like, I've never seen anything like this. I want it. This is the way we work. We've been looking for something like this. 90 were like, I wish we could work that way. This is really cool. But tell me a little bit more about this research and insights piece you've got. So at that time... We were doing research and insights, right? But it was also connecting to like product decisions and trying to connect to analytics and then like tracking that back to goals. I mean, it was a, it was a very ambitious <laughs> platform, let's just say for a couple of uh, pirate bootstrappers, right? But people just were not ready to work that way at scale. And so we had enough interest where we eventually launched the, uh, the actual live version of that and we're getting some paying customers, nothing to really write home about. But then this feedback continued to roll in that just like, yeah, this is really cool, but we just really need a way to organize all these these insights and, and, and research that we're doing with customers. And uh, it just became apparent to me, particularly as somebody who's been worked in the industry for over 15 years now, that I was like, yeah, it's actually always been about that. So the idea was, okay, we're going to take the research and insights piece, pull that out, build it in its own app, basically inject it with steroids and integrate the two. Sounds reasonable enough, right? Sell them as separate products and you can kind of plug and play. We launched the beta version of just the Research and Insights app. And even our paying customers were using the beta version of that more than the old one. That was a clear signal, sunset the old product, okay? So at this point, we're headfirst into Research and Insights piece, and uh, we're building that. Fast forward to, oh man, I don't even remember the exact, the exact year, 17, 18, somewhere around there, we're like, 
the old code base isn't working for us. What we want to do and how we want to like, you know, really put the pedal down on the research and insights piece. So completely redesigned, completely replatformed, like new code base and everything. Yes, painful, <laughs> but you know, was necessary. Served us pretty well. The thing was back then, I think it was in mostly Angular and also Riot.js. Not easy to find developers, not easy to ramp people up. Slower development time. So then we go, we're going to change that. So then we did that. Okay, fine. And then we finally go, well, there's been a lot of advances in other of the technology that we had in the initial database was actually uh, Neo4j because we were doing some things with like making recommendations and stuff like that, which suited us well for that. But then it just made sense to move off of that and go to Mongo and then redo the front end and react because way much faster dev time being a team that is bootstrapped, like speed to development is huge. So that was version three, which actually launched version three, I use air quotes, um, of what you see today in Aurelius, which launched in September. And, you know, every single one of those times, like, yeah, it was absolutely painful. And every single one of those times we had that conversation, I'm sitting here like, you know, you already said it, do we really have to do this again? But we were able to accelerate every time after that. So it's just like, you just basically crawl through glass uphill, and then you're able to go down the other side of the hill, you know? Right. I have a saying that I say all the time, which is, so much of being an entrepreneur is making hard decisions with incomplete information to where you can never get to 100% certainty. There is no data that tells you oh, that there has to be a gut element. And I, I say that with product validation, when people do customer development, try to do lean startup, you put up a landing page, whatever, never gets you to 100%. Maybe it gets you to 50%, maybe 60 You know, And, and I've found these massive, pretty undoable decisions are often like that. So how did you feel and how did you and Joseph kind of reconcile that each time? Was it like, well, this is what our gut tells us and enough of the data is pointing in this direction? And then did you lose many nights of sleep as you were trying to make the decision or how did that happen? Yeah, I think that's a really fair question. The first time around, it was it was really moving away from the database and being like Neo4j. So when we first built it, it made a ton of sense because we were trying to like help automate and create recommendations and connecting decisions and stuff. Again, very ambitious and worked, which was cool. But then we moved away from that and like then creating different connections within the data Neo4j just did not serve us well. So painful, but it was like we didn't lose any sleep. It was it was a clear necessity, you know, incomplete, but still a clear set. We, we aren't going to do what we wanted to do with that. I would say in the more sort of recent world, you know, when we looked at sort of e the front end technology and how things were built, we just looked at it and, and thought, here's what questions I asked. If we were to build X feature we're working on right now, which we're now in like React, right, TypeScript, how much time would we save? And, you know, Joseph was giving me some answers on that. And I'm just doing the calculations in my head. And I'm like, so we're basically launching features that would take us probably all of next year in essentially six months is the estimate. Now, we're never right on that. But that was like, to me, that was such a huge deal because every single one of our competitors are venture backed. They've got a team of people sitting around working on stuff. And it's me and Joseph. So it was just a clear decision. I mean, it wasn't easy to make. I'm not trying to trivialize like, well, yeah, it was a no brainer, but because it sucks, you're replatforming the whole thing, you know, which is stopping essentially new feature development and stuff. But it was just so necessary looking at the, the time to development in the future, knowing that that was something we'd never be able to keep up if we didn't do it. Hey, this is Rob dropping in from a separate time and space to talk to you about Rewardful. Everyone knows it's hard to grow an online business, especially in the early days. People are becoming desensitized to content marketing and paid advertisements. Instead, they're turning to product recommendations from people they trust. So how do you cut through the noise and grow through word of mouth? 
This is where Rewardful comes in. Rewardful has everything you need to start referral marketing for your SaaS, membership, or e-commerce business. Reward your advocates whenever they send you paying customers. Rewardful is specifically built to work with Stripe and automatically handles one-time charges, free trials, upgrades, downgrades, cancellations, and refunds. They can even help you find and recruit relevant affiliates for your industry. Companies like Transistor, Podia, and Bear Metrics trust Rewardful to power their affiliate programs and scale with their growth. Spencer Fry from Podia says, every other affiliate platform we looked at was either insanely expensive or full of bugs, and sometimes both. Rewardful has been rock solid, took less than 15 minutes to install. It's the perfect affiliate solution for SaaS companies using Stripe. So whether you're looking to start an affiliate program, partner program, customer referral program, or all the above, Rewardful lets you manage everything under one roof with a simple 15-minute integration. Get 30% off your first three months by heading to getrewardful.com slash startups. That's getrewardful.com slash startups. Offer expires May 31st. So you've made these hard decisions to to replatform. You have an alpha, you have a V1, you have a V2. And you and Joseph are working your day jobs. Joseph's the developer, right? And you're everything else, I'm assuming. Product, <laughs> marketing, <laughs> yeah, about sales. Right. Yeah, it's all that. You're we're on the operation side. And just trying to keep stuff off his plate. I've, I've been there, right? It's like, we need features. So I'm going to do, do everything else. So the two of you are working day jobs. You're working on Aurelius on the side. And COVID hits. There was a big shift that happened to you guys there. Talk me through what happened. Yeah, well, I mean, it was um, sort of business as usual as it was at that time. And it was the end of March, beginning of April, around that time. I had actually gotten placed on furlough. And so none of us knew how long this was going to take. So that was fine. And, you know, I was placed on furlough and just kind of working from home. But then I thought, well, no problem. I've, <laughs> I've got a company I'm trying to build. Uh, I will just focus on that and, uh, you know, during my day, which is what we wanted to do anyway. But then Joseph also got laid off from his job, right? And so we just kind of looked at each other and said, okay, well, look, we can, we can look at this as a, a challenge and freak out, or we can use this as an opportunity. And we decided to use it as an opportunity. And we just focused on Aurelius and we had a target in mind. You know, we said, look, if we can get to this, this revenue number, because again, we had no funding, if we can get to this revenue number that gives us this runway, we both agree that we'll go full time. And, you know, the pandemic as terrible as it was, and actually still is in many ways, was uh, both a gift and a curse to us. You know, it kind of, it forced us to do that. And it also allowed us to get really focused and and reach that goal. And so we did. And then through part of that was when we launched version three, which did not come without its, uh, let's, call, let's call them speed bumps <laughs> on the road to getting there. But, you know, it was a huge deal because after that, everything just, as the saying goes, kind of went up and to the right. Yeah. And that's, that's something, I mean, getting furloughed or laid off is, Painful. I mean, there's no, there's no two ways about that. But it sounds like the the realization quickly set in of like, wait a minute, I have this side thing. I mean, that's one of the beauties of being an entrepreneur, right? Is you always have a plan B and often a plan C, D, and E. That whether it's a side project or whether it's just being an entrepreneur forces you to be pretty creative as a as a problem solver. So, were you stressed when you were furloughed slash laid off? Were you like ever like, oh my gosh, this is terrible, or was it pretty instantly like, now I have time to work to focus on this? So, I don't think that there's uh, one or the other. I think there were some of both. Although, funny enough, like initially, it was more the like, fine, I'm going to go heads down on the thing that I've wanted to go completely heads down on for years now, anyway. So, that was great. But, the, you know, some of where the mega stress came in was definitely as we got 
later in the summer and version three was a real slog for us to get out the door for various reasons. And at that point, things start creeping into your mind. I've got a family, you know, I've got a, a seven-year-old and a two-year-old married a house and stuff like that, you know? So it's like, and I'm the primary income. So my, my wife is stay at home and it's like, you got things that start creeping into your mind. Like, how am I going to feed my kids if this doesn't work, you know? And I think that I know that I'm certainly not alone in the entrepreneur world of people who who think about that. Things cross their mind. I think as uh, as gutsy as a lot of us can be and, and a lot of um, sort of bravado, I think we a lot of us might have, that stuff still comes in. And it just got to this point where we were working so hard on getting this version out that I knew was going to bring us success. It was almost like I could just predict the future. Honestly, I can't describe it any other way. But it was, it was such a pain to get there where I'm not going to lie to you, June, July... August of last year were, was definitely literally the hardest time in my life. Absolutely, without question. And I've done a lot of hard stuff in my life, purposefully. I, t I tend to seek out like really difficult challenges, without question, the most stressful, the most difficult time in my life. What was going on there? I mean, I can, you know, I feel your pain because I've obviously built many software products, whether I was a developer or someone else was, and it always took longer than, than we wanted it to. And so I've felt stress, but I wouldn't say for me that those times were the, like the worst in my life. So what was it the confluence of, I need money? Like I need, I need this to work. Otherwise I'm going to have to go get a day job in the middle of COVID plus the delays. It was absolutely the convergence of all those things. So, because it's funny, and, and I don't mean to trivialize it because there's nothing easy about a company, certainly as Bootstrap, but that was like the easy part. It was doing it under the conditions of, uh, of everything that was going on. I mean, so <laughs> we got two young kids at home and one that is like, yeah, I'm going to go back to school, but except you can't go to school. And we haven't really figured out how to homeschool because we've, you know, nobody's ever done this before. We've never been in situation. And then on top of that, like you can't go anywhere and there's like literally no release. So it's not, it wasn't just building the company and doing those stressful things. It was doing it under an additionally exponentially stressful environment. You know what I mean? And then of course, yes, the things in the back of your mind is like, well, if this doesn't work, basically how much time do I have to figure out if I need to get another job so I can just uh, keep my family living well? Yeah, that's the thing with uncertainty, man. It is no joke. I mean, it can... I don't think people stay up at night or wake up at three in the morning worrying about things they're certain about, right? It's always the what if, what's going to happen, and you feel like you can think your way into certainty. But in fact, if you talk to any psychologist, a good psychologist, they will say ruminating on the same problem without new information, if you're stressing about it, is not helpful. Now, trying to solve mentally a puzzle that you're not stressed about, you know, I, I often do that in the shower while I'm washing dishes, while I'm walking around, I'll just think over and over, how can we solve this? And I'm not like, oh my God, I'm worried, I'm worried. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to come up with a, a solution to it. That is helpful, but it's the, it's the thinking about something for days and perseverating on it that is just, is brutal and it'll eat you up. So yeah, I totally, I totally get what that, what that feels like. I didn't have it last year in COVID, but I had it for me, it was 2014 year where there was some mismanaged my cash flow. I was transitioning away from Hittail and Drip was just getting going, but it wasn't growing as fast as it needed to be. And then a big tax bill came through for last, you know, the prior year. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have enough cash to pay for it. And I remember feeling that and feeling the weight of like, I don't know if I can get myself out of this. And I feel like, you know, you talked earlier about the bravado or the 
entrepreneurs taking big risks or whatever. But I've often found, especially in our circles, kind of bootstrap SaaS founders, that we're actually, we're not that risk. I, I would say we're maybe more risk averse than a lot of the Silicon Valley founders would have us believe, right? It's like the folks I know usually don't take out 30, 40, 50 grand in credit card debt, like you might hear on some fancy podcast about some multimillionaire or, you know, sleep in their car to get this done. It's like, none of the folks we know are actually, while we may take on more risks than our friends who are developers at Target or Best Buy, we still go about this pretty sensibly and methodically. And we want something that has a pretty high chance of success. Would you describe yourself that way? Do you feel like you're a risk in terms of entrepreneurs? Do you think you're a big risk taker? Are you more risk averse? You know, I don't. I would. I would say I probably conform more to the description you gave of most bootstrappers, and I think that that's actually why it was particularly stressful, because like the business end of things, there's certain calculated risks that, uh, you know, I know I'm willing to take. Joseph, he and I are actually extremely on the same page. So like that wasn't the issue. It was doing that in a completely uncertain world as well, you know? So it was like, it's fine dealing with a certain amount of uncertainty and risk in one area of your life, but then to also not know when are we going to like get to have our kids go back to school again or them play with friends or ever see family. It was just like literally nothing but uncertainty and risk, honestly, physical and otherwise. In every area of my life, it was just like, you can't be serious right now. It was just unprecedented. So that's why I say almost like the business side of things was relatively easy, except at that point, because V3 was just taking so much longer to get out the door, it was like, well, we can't actually start growing until that happens. I was certain of that. And so not knowing, you know, not having uh, at least some semblance of certainty when that's going to happen, just, you know what I mean? Everything just exponentially grows at that case, given those circumstances. Yeah. I had a, a friend that I used to work with and he said, I can handle a large amount of uncertainty in my work life as long as my home life is stable or my personal life is stable. And if my work life is super stable and chill, I can handle uncertainty in my personal life, but I can't do both. Like that's where it tips me over. And that's, you're, you're basically describing what a lot of us, you know, especially those of us with kids. I mean, a lot of us felt it last year with the danger from COVID. Then you have uncertainty at your day job. Then you're home all the time. And then if you add kids to that mix of like, oh, wow, now I have to hit kids that, you know, are at home, I'm, whether you're homeschooling them or not, if they're of that age, that's, it's not an easy scene. Yeah, it was mental. It was completely mental. And like I said, just com entirely tumultuous time. Now add to that, I mean, the fact that you mentioned we both live in Minneapolis, it cannot go without saying there was a lot of socially relevant events happening around that time too, that again, just added an incredible amount of additional stress and uh, emotional heaviness, you know, with what happened with George Floyd, the aftermath of that. It was just, it was just really heavy duty time in my life. Yeah, I remember that as well. So the summer is super stressful and you're just counting the days in essence until you can ship this. And it's, it's taking longer than you and Joseph want. Waiting, waiting, waiting. In September, you're able to launch it. It sounds like things literally went up and to the right from there. And what's funny is usually as a founder, we're so certain that this next feature, this next rewrite, this next whatever is going to be the difference. And usually it isn't, but sometimes it, it is. And it sounds like for you, th this V3, which is actually, if you include your alpha, is like a fourth version, but this V3 was really what broke it wide open for you. Yeah, it absolutely was. And again, I mean, I think that's what added the stress to to all of this for me is because... 
I was so certain of that. I was so certain that, yeah, things kind of go up and to the right with version three because, you know, I do research with our customers all the time. I do, I'm the one that does all the demos. I'm the one that hears all the feedback. I'm the one that's literally involved in the communities that we serve. And I hear what people are saying. I'm like, I know what we've got to do. And we need to get this thing out the door, you know? And you're talking about demos. That was just a perfect example. It was like the first time I demoed V3. You know, we would get pretty good reactions of the stuff that we built and what we were doing, even in version two. But I think not only our design, but then also the way in which we were doing some things were kind of hit or miss. You either really loved it or it was like, oh, well, there's other tools that do this differently and we prefer that. Okay, well, version three, it's like most of them are just grand slams. And I'm not trying to, you know, be arrogant or boastful, but it, it really is like the, the reaction by and large. It's a rare occasion where people are like, oh, I don't know if this is what I'm looking for. It's just like, you know, we got to where we needed to get to. And I was very, I was very confident of that because, because funny enough, you know, a very meta moment, we do a bunch of research. We're not taking guesses at what we should build. It's like I'm, we're understanding the needs of, of our customer base really well. And these were all things that touched on just so many important points that we, that we weren't touching on at the time. So it sounds like V3 was a technology replatforming where you rewrote it mostly from scratch. And in addition, you added a bunch of features. Is that right? And total redesign, like visual UI Holy redesign. Moly. Yeah, yeah, dude. That's a lot of moving pieces. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. It was, a, it, was a, it was a massive move. I mean, I wouldn't say that we came to that decision lightly. You know, we first kind of started talking about it as like, we should definitely change the design. There's a number of things that we know we can do that would give it us big lift of just like redesign. So that's front end code, CSS for the most part, right? No problem. But then as we started talking about this more and, and things that we wanted to do as part of that, what was central to kind of making this decision was how you were able to take notes in Aurelius. So table stakes, right? You got to be able to take notes and it's got to be a pretty nice tool to do that. If you consider <laughs> what what is setting expectations of people on a note-taking tool on the internet, it's a pretty high bar. That can't suck. And uh, there was a lot of work, as you can imagine. That's, that is definitely the most complicated area of our app. And we had to rewrite that whole thing. So the thing is, like, you start you start peeling back layers to this and you go, well, if we're going to do that, then we might as well do this. If we're going to do that and that, then we might as well do this too. And so we just said, all right, we're redoing the whole thing. It's going to serve us better, and we're going to be able to move a lot faster. And, you know, since 2021, we have literally launched, I can look at the list right here. We have literally launched 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 new features or enhancements since January. And that would have never been true on the old platform. Because of the tech. Yeah. The velocity is so much higher. Ah, this is this is one of those things that's so tough. And it's, you know, Joel Spolsky wrote an essay about it 20 years ago of like never rewrite your code base. Like it's the biggest mistake in the history of things. But there are some slim exceptions where, A, if you're early enough, which I think is, a, is something we should point out here. It's not like you were, you had 5,000 customers and a million dollars in ARR and you were going to rewrite it, right? It's like you were still early enough and it wasn't resonating. You know, your V2 or your earlier versions weren't resonating as much as, as you knew that this one could. And it sounds like you knew this from user research, right? This was a lot of customer conversations. 100%. Yeah, I mean, everything we do, it's like uh, I used to saying all the time, we eat our own dog food. Like I'm not just some sales guy who's like, I think I have a great tool for you to use. No, I use Aurelius for our customer research. I have worked in the industry for 15 years. That's how we make decisions on what to build. This isn't made up or it's not something we just think is cool. So absolutely. So with that in mind, because I am obviously a believer in talking to customers, but I'm also a big believer in like founder gut feeling and vision, you know, and there being some element of that, because 
Oftentimes users will just tell you to replicate all the features of Evernote or all the features of MailChimp. You know, like in the early days of Drip, it was just like, well, I want a mobile app and I, MailChimp does this. And I want the, and we were like, yeah, that's not where we're building. You know, so there was like this element of like, we wanted to listen to our users, but we also had, again, we had that founder gut feel. How do you, as someone who, who does a lot of UX, does product direction, does user research, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's really easy to answer, actually, because, and funny enough, we just launched a podcast episode with somebody who I have for years had an insane amount of respect for their work, a guy by the name of John Colco. He's one of the people who I would absolutely consider experts on exactly that question of like, well, how do you make sense of what you hear from customers and the research you do, right? And one of the things he said that I'll just kind of paraphrase him is that your worldview, like your global perspective applied to what you hear is where the magic happens. And so, you know, we hear this all the time. There's a, there's a difference between what customers, what, what they say they want and what they actually need. And so the thing is, and this is also a very meta moment of something Aurelius helps you do, is figure out, well, yes, here's frequency and patterns and what you're hearing in research, but being able to capture what that means. Because it's one thing to say six out of ten people who answered the survey said they want a mobile app. Yes, but Why? Right. Like, and so, you know, my, uh, you say founder gut, I can interpret that a little easier. I have, you know, it's an advantage because I've worked in the field, but if I hear something, it's like, well, we need integrations. Well, you don't actually need integrations. You need a, an easier way to get the research data you've got into the tool, which is why we actually have, we do have integrations in Aurelius, but that was never a big play of ours because funny enough, we ask people, for example, okay, well, why do you need integrations? Well, you, then you learn, well, we have all this research and all these other places we want to get into the same tool. And that and integration doesn't necessarily solve that, right? Building tools in your platform that help you facilitate that is what solves that problem. Just stuff like that, right? And so then I was able to interpret that knowing that a lot of these teams aren't necessarily using you know, other tools, for, for example, to use that example, to integrate stuff. Uh, it's actually just they have access to all this other data they want to kind of bring together and analyze together. Does that make sense? It does. Did you hear my rant? This is probably four or five episodes ago about the, the Henry Ford quote. Yeah. About yeah. building a better, you know, if they told me, if I, if I did the, what my customers wanted, I would have built a faster horse. And it's like, yeah, if you're a dumbass, like, don't do that. If you're a product person, you don't do what they tell you. You say, what are they saying? Well, they're saying they want something faster. Okay. So don't build a horse, but, you know, build something faster that blah, blah, blah. Like, you don't take your customers literally. You put your own lens on it and you figure out... It's to your point, you know, it's it's what they need rather than what they say they need, right? Yeah, and it's it's 100% what it is. It's applying your perspective. Your lived experience applied or sort of filtered through what you hear from customers is actually really, really valuable. And I think that people want to shy away from that. You know, there are some purists who do research. It's like it's all about what you hear from them and analyzing that. And I don't agree with that. That's not true. Your lived experience and your interpretation of that is a really valuable addition to it. It just can't be the dominating voice. Right. And there's also an element of innovation that has to happen. Like, uh, has to is a strong word, but I think that the best companies, they borrow from what customers want, but they borrow from usually a pain that the founders discover, whether it's their own pain or the pain of someone around them. And then there's an innovative piece that starts to, to creep in that that is unique. And I think there's a certain magic to a lot of startups that if you just make the whole thing innovative, then it's too novel and no one uses it. If you mix all those three things together, I think that's really your golden ticket for building great product. 100%. You know, and I actually have one of our most popular early features was an example of exactly that. So we knew that people were looking for ways to get, 
you know, research notes, data and stuff into our app faster. And one of the things that I found myself wanting to do is I was like, you know, I can actually describe to you the situation and how we built this. It was, this is a really fun kind of like hacker story, early hacker story. Joseph and I, we were working together in person. Uh, we were actually in my basement. And I said, dude, you know what would be really cool is if I could just like copy these notes or copy this data into a Rayless. And it, and it took like every line break and it made a new note automatically that I could tag that individually. I could like analyze that individually. And he was like, I'm pretty sure I can do that. So we built what is now called our bulk input feature. And if you copy and, and paste any sort of text or data, so if it's a column from a spreadsheet, each cell will create its own new note individually, or it's a text file, every line break or carriage return creates its own new note. And it was like very much a hacker thing. We built it in a night. And it's been in our product ever since we were like getting paying customers. And it was one of the earliest, most like favorite features from our customers. That's super cool. I love stuff like that, where it's a little bit, it's there's some scratch your own itch. There's some, let's see if this works. And yeah, that's the fun of building product. I think one of the fun things. Zach Naylor, congrats on all your success. I'm super stoked for you guys to, uh, you know, be cranking away on Aurelius full time, as well as um, to be working with you in Tiny Seed Batch 3. Folks want to keep up with you. You are Zach Naylor on Twitter. That's Z-A-C-K-N-A-Y-L-O-R. And of course, Aurelius Lab on Twitter as well and AureliusLab.com. Thanks so much for joining me, man. Yeah, for sure. Really appreciate it. As a reminder, today's episode was brought to you by Rewardful. Rewardful is quickly becoming the go-to platform to set up affiliate, referral, and partner programs for your SaaS, membership, or subscription business. Rewardful handles all subscription billing scenarios such as free trials, upgrades, downgrades, cancellations, refunds, and prorated charges out of the box with their simple 15-minute setup. They're the only platform that has a built-in affiliate finder that crawls the web and surfaces high-quality relevant affiliates for your program. Simply search by keyword, competitor, or alternative names and reach out to the best affiliates in your market to take your program to the next level. Check them out at getrewardful.com slash startups. That's getrewardful.com slash startups to get 30% off your first three months. Offer expires May 31st. And thank you for joining me again this week. I'll be back in your earbuds next Tuesday morning.